From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. I'm Jen Goldbeck from the University of Maryland, sitting in for Kojo. The forecast was for an inch of snow during the morning commute. But the White House in the Maryland suburbs got three inches, Dulles Airport got four, and Middleburg, Virginia got five. The result was a slow, slippery morning commute and local transportation officials scrambling to move from salting to plowing as the snow piled up and exceeded the forecast. Richard Dorsey, chief of field operations for highway services at the Montgomery County Department of Transportation, joined us by phone to explain what happened there this morning. Richard Dorsey, thanks for joining us. How are you this morning? Pretty good. Everyone's wondering why they didn't see plows out this morning. How did you prepare for the one inch of snow forecast and then shift gears when the snow kept falling? Well, well, yesterday morning we got a forecast alerting us that we were going to receive one to two inches of snow. Normally in Montgomery County, that's a, a sorting operation. So at the time of the forecast, uh, the mines in Montgomery County, Department of Transportation, the Division of Highway Service got together, and we discussed a plan to uh, address the forecast. And and we developed that plan, and we mobilized our folk for, for that particular plan. This morning at around 7.30 a.m., we got an update to the forecast, alerting us that we were going to get from two to four inches of snow. Based on the application of salt that we've already applied starting at 4 a.m. this morning, um, we needed to move into a a different approach to addressing the weather conditions. The snow was uh, intensified at around 7 a.m., and they were calling for four inches. So we retooled our resources to um, a plowing operation. At around 9.30 this morning, um, our folks were out with plows and salting on our primary and secondary roads to address the weather conditions. What do you... It was a challenge, you know, based on the traffic because, you know, the residents and the commuters through Montgomery County were anticipating the same thing that we were, a one to two inch snow. Yeah, I was one of those commuters and uh, coming out of Montgomery County, and uh, I got going a little later than 7.30 and just anticipated a really, really long drive into the studio today, which is what we had. What do you expect the roads to be like for the drive home today? Well, we expect to have the primary and secondary roads uh, down to bare pavement by the evening rush hour. Um, and hopefully mid to late evening, um, we'll be in our neighborhoods trying to prepare those roads for, for a safe commute in the a.m. For, for the residents and the pastors of Montgomery County to, to handle their business on, their transporta- on our transportation system. That's good news. Richard Dorsey, Montgomery County Department of Transportation, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. In the district, Mayor Muriel Bowser held a press conference an hour ago to explain the decision-making on snow removal this morning. WAMU web producer and reporter Martin Ostermule is there and joins us by phone. Martin, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. What did the mayor say about why there wasn't more plowing in the district this morning? It was very bad on my drive-in. Right. And so the mayor didn't say much that was different from what we just heard from Montgomery County, which is they had a specific, um, you know, they had some sort of weather that was coming in that they expected, and it changed, and it changed late enough that the pre-treating of the roads that they had done yesterday by putting salt and beet juice down basically became ineffective. So they had to switch from you know, having pre-treated roads to actually plowing the roads, and that happened right around the time that everybody started going to work, hence the delays that everybody saw. What will the afternoon commute be like in the district? The afternoon, they already promised that the afternoon commute will be much better. I'm actually down here at DDOT headquarters, um, not far from Nationals Park, and the roads here are perfectly clear. They said that any side roads that haven't yet been cleared will be, will be cleared by the afternoon rush, so people getting home can feel a little more confident that it'll take them less time than it took them to come in. Martin Oshimil, thanks very much for the update from D.C. 
Absolutely. WAMU transportation reporter Martin DeCaro has been on the phone with the Maryland and Virginia Departments of Transportation this morning. He joins us in studio. Martin, what are you hearing from transportation officials today about why so few roads were plowed for the morning rush hour? Well, the story is the same across the region, as my colleague Martin alluded to. There's a 3 a.m. conference call on any day like this, and it's organized by the Council of Governments. Uh, The school districts are on it. The federal government is on it. Metro, all the transit agencies, all the local government agencies. The National Weather Service does a briefing. They got the same forecast everyone else did, about an inch or two or snow, maybe more outside the district. We got more than that. So... Maryland State Highway says they had their plows and trucks out this morning. Virginia does not plow until there are at least two inches of snow. They said once the decision was made to send the plows out, it's too late. It's already the heart of morning rush hour. Basically what happened here is this. Listen, traffic stinks every day in our region. It doesn't take a lot to screw up traffic on a grand scale in our region every single day, even when there are no problems, right? So today we had snow falling during the heart of rush hour when most people are already out on the road heading to work, right? And we had a forecast that called for significantly less. Now, this is a very touchy subject in our region, right, about how our, quote, region handles snow. Still, in the end, what was it, three, four, maybe five inches in some places? My girlfriend's from Minnesota. She laughs at this kind of thing, like five inches of snow is not a new story there. All of the factors worked in against us this morning and created a nightmarish commute, and it should be fine going home. I hope so. And just to give us a few updates, Carroll, Virginia, which is obviously quite a ways out there, got six inches of snow. Virginia got four. Chantilly got just about four. And the Capitol reports 3.5. So uh, quite a winter wonderland for us commuting today. Yeah, I mean, the, the plows would have been out earlier had the snowfall been more intense or the, accurate, the forecast been accurate. And maybe it would have been different. But by the time the plows, well, at least in Virginia and other places, the call was made. I mean, they can't move when there's so much traffic out there. Martin DeCaro, thanks for joining us. We'll continue our conversation and bring in the computer guys and gal after this short break. Stay tuned. Listening to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Good afternoon. I'm Tamika Smith. Coming up. On the next Fresh Air, writer and TV producer George Pelicanos. He worked on the HBO series The Wire and Treme. He grew up in Washington, D.C. and had his own brushes with the law before he became a crime novelist. He has a new collection of short stories and a novella. Join us. That's today at 2 on WAMU 88.5. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Emergent Biosolutions, a global biopharmaceutical company. Since 1998, Emergent has been dedicated to protecting the nation against biological agents and emerging health threats. More at ebsi.com anniversary. And from the Sanju K. Bonsal Foundation, dedicated to helping people help themselves through improved access to information. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Pepco's Energy Savings Program, providing technical and financial assistance to Maryland business customers for upgrades to energy-efficient lighting and more. Information at pepco.com business. And from General Dynamics Information Technology, increasing operational readiness with simulation and training products, services, and solutions. General Dynamics IT, gdit.com training and simulation. And from Roundtop Mountain Resort, offering skiing and snowboarding trails and lessons for all ability levels, just a short drive from the Beltway. Directions and details at roundtopmountainresort.com. Now back to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Allison <laughs> Druin, WAMU computer gal, chief futurist at the University of Maryland Division of Research, co-director of the Future of Information Alliance at the University of Maryland. Great to see you. As always, a pleasure. <laughs> And Bill Harlow, WAMU computer guy and hardware and software technician for Macs and PCs at Mid-Atlantic Consulting, Inc. Hi, Bill. Hi. Happy New Year. Same to you. All right. Let's jump in. 
From the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, there's big news for viewers looking to lower their cable TV bill. The satellite TV provider Dish Network said yesterday it's going to offer free, I'm sorry, offer ESPN and a package of other network programming for $20 a month, which is almost free compared to what we pay now for our cable bills. As the news, this news comes as as consumers are trying to cut the cost of watching shows they like, and the cable and satellite companies are trying to win new customers. Bill. Sports has long been the holy grail of broadcast television, the programming that keeps consumers like me hooked up to cable so they won't miss their favorite game. What will Dish Network's new Sling TV mean for traditional cable service? I think it could mean big things for cable cutters um, in a lot of markets because ESPN has traditionally been one of the big um, stations that tends to... um, be the reason why cable costs so much. So having an option to get that outside of cable TV is pretty enormous. Now, there are some sports, I think like hockey is pretty underrepresented on ESPN. So for me, that, doesn't really, yeah, that doesn't really solve things. But uh, I, it, it's a good start. And we'll see if other people fall in line because ESPN is the juggernaut when it comes to uh, cable sports. Let's take a look at the biggest hacking story of last year, the Sony email breach and the international outrage over the movie The Interview. And I have to say, I spent a lot of time explaining why would anyone make such a movie to friends and family when I was home over the holidays? (laughs) Did you see The Interview over holiday break? Who do you think hacked Sony's computers and who shut down North Korea's internet for a day? Give us a call. Talk to the computer guys and gal. It's 1-800-433-8850. Allison, we're going to skip over the politics of this incident and look at the technology. Sony took a lot of flack for not protecting its email better, but how secure is anyone's email against a concerted effort by hackers? Look, nothing is safe, okay? Uh, The new normal is nothing is safe. And why? Because information is valuable. The more that information becomes valuable, the harder it is to decide what are you leaving on the table here. Okay, and, you know, information is currency, it's power, it's status, it's money. And when somebody hacks and says, I'm not giving you back your information until you uh, until you give me money. I mean, that's serious blackmail. And what do you do? And well, guess what? You hope that you've backed your stuff up properly. You hope that you've done. Uh, you know, the, you hope that you've done the right thing in terms of uh, making sure that you, you've locked things down in the cloud and not right in the same computer so that you can't get at things. But it's um, it's really, really hard to keep things safe. You, you also have to think about your identity and what, you know, uh, you need identity checks to basically uh, sure that no one's taking your identity. It's really scary out there. And I now am sounding like John. The world is <laughs> no. not safe. <laughs> oh, 2015 is going to be rough. Yeah. At 1 o'clock this morning, I was emailing back and forth with one of the fellows I work with, and uh, he wanted something called a password. There's no way I was going to put any email with anything to do with that, but I just I texted it to him. <laughs> and so what I think is the, what's happening, I think, is there's action, reaction, action, reaction. And, and I think good old uh, feature phone texting, I think this is increasingly the way that people are getting around that because that's, that's probably a, a security way to uh, send information, I would think. And Allison, you alluded to something that I'd like all of your thoughts on, which was known as ransomware. Hackers can get into your computer, put some malware on there and lock it down and demand ransom for you from you to unlock your computer, which is a terrifying thing because I put very little in the cloud because I'm scared of the cloud being hacked. I keep it on my computer and they can lock my computer down. Like how terrifying is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that they're saying, no, I don't want your money. I want your bitcoins. Bitcoins. So that they're saying, you know, so basically, oh my goodness, the, the article in the Sunday New York Times was just, it broke my heart, okay? It just broke my heart. This poor woman who tried so hard to, to, to basically pay off these horrible people that had ransomed, uh, you know, that were ransoming her stuff. And then she just, lost, you know, ran out of time. And they said, sorry, now it's up to a thousand bitcoins. And it was just a horrible experience. And I just keep thinking to myself, you know what? The more we put stock into the pictures we have on on our computers, the information that we've written, whether it's our personal books that we want to make sure we sell for a million dollars or anything else, it's so important. Please back it up in multiple ways, not only on your computer, Jen. Really? <laughs> I, I actually, it's interesting. I have a MacBook Air, which has like sort of limited storage space because it's got, you know, flash memory. And uh, and so it was all of a sudden full because I put this Coursera 
you know, MOOC with all these videos actually about usable security. I put that together. <laughs> so I had, you know, eight weeks of videos about usable security, which filled up my drive. But I've got all these external hard drives laying around. So I moved the whole Coursera folder off my computer on there. And this is actually potentially an interesting way to do backup, right? That you've got you know, a bunch of these external hard drives, stick a bunch of stuff on different ones. And, uh, you know, then you've got some duplication. Nobody can hack into them because they're not connected to anything when you're not backing up. And then you stay off the cloud and you, you doesn't matter if they lock your computer down because your files are somewhere else. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it makes sense, but I always worry like, okay, the earthquake that's going to take your, your house down and therefore you've got all of your external hard drive <laughs> sitting there too. So. I do have the real, like the books that are in the middle of being drafted on Dropbox. So. Okay. All right. Makes gotta me feel better. Everywhere. All right. Okay. So John, you had said we should text our passwords, but like, what do we do in general? Do we like use the phone for all our private communications? I think, hey, in Washington, D.C. in August, it's hot. And guess what? Ain't going to change. I think this world on the internet is is just going to be very uh, vulnerable. And I would be very, very wary of putting any information there. I was I had to send some financial information to a person in town here recently, and I drove it over to the office and handed it to this person because I didn't want to have anything to do with any stinking internet. I've, I I know too many enterprise architects who tell me stories, and so I think you just have to you have to you know what I see people doing people using fax machines now for some financial information, which it seems crazy, and there's secure ways to go back and forth. I just I'm very wary of believing some statements that are made about security, especially from some organizations. How's that for a discreet statement? (laughs) (laughs) Bill, in late December, after the Sony hack was revealed, North Korea's internet went dark for a day. And it's maybe a little bit of an exaggeration to call what they have in North Korea the internet. They've got a thousand IPs. That counts for something. (laughs) I think I maybe have a thousand IPs personally. (laughs) How hard would it be to launch a denial of service attack like the one that apparently stopped web service in North Korea for 10 hours in late December? Apparently not that hard. I think I heard they only have one trunk going in and out of the country. So you take that down and they're kind of done. Yeah. And it's it's easy to write a denial of service attack. When I was talking to our producer for the show, I said, I think we learned that like the first day of my computer security. Right. And even if you didn't know it, you could just down, you know get scripts and automate it and just have it happen. Yeah, I've been around so long. I can remember guys on Congress. Remember this, Bill? They talk about, well, there's got, there's got to be an off switch for the internet. <laughs> there's some guy <laughs> in a, a big room. Red lever. Yeah, yeah. Red lever. <laughs> no, we're going to turn this off for you, buddy. <laughs> an off switch. Maybe just for North Korea, you can have an off switch. <laughs> John, what's next for the hackers attacked Sony? The FBI says they might turn their focus to news organizations. I think it's going to turn their focus to Kojo Namdi. Is what I think <laughs> it's going to it's going to, you know, where can they get the most publicity? I would think would be any type of news organizations. Now, what I think is very interesting is is the organizations who have been attacked that have said nothing about it. And um, my sources tell me there are some uh, financial institutions in the United States that may have been attacked and are just shutting up. And, uh, and this is a great question to play with graduate students, the ethics of revealing or not to reveal and, and, and what to reveal or not. So the answer is uh, I don't know. I think they're going to try to get a splash somewhere. I am not sure that uh, this was an inside job with Sony. Uh, I think uh, a lot of um, a malicious activity is uh, the response to uh, maybe employees who may have uh, been uh, released. Mm. It's conspiracy theory. Uh, that's right. That's it's not, that, not that uncommon to have an no. angry employee get back at somebody. I think it happened to Home Depot, didn't it? I think yeah. it happened to the NSA, didn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I think I heard <laughs> Wait, what's that. that guy's name? I mean, if, if Bill's a keeper of all the passwords and he knows all the encryption and we fire Bill, guess what? He's going to come back and get me. I've heard about that. Bill, another hackable technology apparently is smartwatches. Researchers managed to hack a Samsung Gear Live smartwatch that was paired with a Google Nexus 4 smartphone. What happened, and what does this mean for the security of Bluetooth transmissions? Well, see what happens long term. I mean, they, they demonstrated that they were able to basically sniff around and, and uh, gather the data being sent between the, the watch and, and the phone. And part of that is, you know, the phone's a very personal device. You have a lot of stuff that uh, comes in that, you know, is sensitive. And the whole point of these smartwatches, in addition to health features, is to quickly have notifications of things like text coming in and out, emails, that sort of thing. So that's potentially uh, sensitive data. I mean, there are ways that, that you can encrypt data between Bluetooth uh, devices. And my understanding is that there are a lot of um, ways of locking down Bluetooth a bit tighter so that even if you have the uh, the pass key, the pin, it's not enough to get in there and get the data. But they demonstrated that in this circumstance, it is possible. And I'm sure there could be some smart hackers who find other ways around the systems. This is like uh, Get Smart, you know, the old <laughs> 1960s. Uh, the shoe know, phone. The shoe <laughs> phone. And, you know, and, and, you know, the 
the So we just need a cone of silence then. Yeah, we need a cone of silence. Oh my god. That's the answer for email. Exactly. I just I just solved cybersecurity. Yes, right here. Let's take a call from Ralph in Washington DC. Ralph, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, you know, I I've, I've been watching this unfold for 10 years. I, you know, I got into computer science and communications over 30 years ago. And the fact that Microsoft hires hundreds of engineers and they can't keep people out of the system is unbelievable. I hear about the military who puts military secrets accessible by the Internet. I worked with a bunch of ex-military retreads, and, and what they did was they had a bunch of uh, keywords and jargon. They didn't know what they were doing, but they were writing standards. And, you know, 90%, in my opinion, 90% of the hacks go undetected. They don't want you to know that they're in your system because they can come back again and again and again and get what they want. So if you don't, if you think that if some little third world country like Korea can walk in and hack a major corporation, imagine what an organized country like China or Russia or one of the other you know hostile countries can do. This is a a problem. If you put your secure stuff on the internet. And a corporation, you should be fired for incompetence. <laughs> well, well I have to disagree with that. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, but there's some interesting points that that Ralph raises there. Uh, John, what do you what do you have to say? Well, from the perspective of an enterprise architect, it would seem to me that many cloud services are more secure than Jen's hard drive sitting in her basement, <laughs> or Bill's thumb drive, or a Dropbox account somewhere. And and if you look at the standards, by the way, and people up at NIST like Dr. Ron Ross and other folks up there have come up with very very sophisticated and current standards for storing data in the cloud. And and you know I've done so much work in the cloud i in you know if designed properly i think cloud security is better than just uh storing uh stuff in a server down the hall so i have to disagree with ralph also i don't think it's the koreans i think it was inside job so hey we disagree on two points but we like you listening ralph <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i've explained this kind of security as like uh you know you can put locks on your doors and you can lock your windows but if somebody wants to get in they're, they're gonna, gonna get in they're yeah. gonna get i mean there's a lot of Hollywood movies about very creative ways to get in, and you can do the same thing on computers. Just okay. do what I do. Just be really boring, and nobody wants your stuff. Then <laughs> they won't be creepy. Okay. Kathleen from Falls Church, who couldn't stay on the line, called and said that she doesn't trust text either because can't the phone companies retrieve those? So, John, the at and is going to steal the passwords that you're texting to people. Well, the, the numbers I read uh, it is possible, but it's such a low percentage. It's like... <laughs> Well, I don't know where this number came from. The number was 3% that I heard of, of problems with texting. It's just, it's so old school. It's almost like faxing. It's like, well, geez, no, no, no one even bothers to try to steal any faxes. And so yeah, but I think it's a, it's a lower incidence. I think it's possible, but a much lower well, incidence. I think you're fooling yourself if you're going to find something that is 100% yeah. safe. You just go with the, uh, the, 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 the least risky option. Though the only thing is, is that with texting, I thought that lawyers can still subpoena your texts and you can actually, though that is a record, uh, a public record as well. Isn't that true? This is why lawyers make you call them and tell them everything. That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, $400 an hour. Yeah, it's true. Let's look at some of the tech trends we're likely to see in the coming year, starting with the ways we use social media, a topic near and dear to my heart. Facebook has new privacy settings and Twitter has a new analytics tool that lets you tell how many people are actually reading your tweets. When did you last update your Facebook privacy settings? Do you know who's reading your tweets and clicking on your links? Let us know and let's be like platform appropriate here. Send a message to our Facebook page or send us a tweet to <laughs> at Kojo Show. Platform appropriate. <laughs> Allison, like Twitter now offers analytics on every tweet so you can find out exactly how many people saw your tweet or clicked the link in it. How is this useful or depressing for the everyday Twitter user? Uh, this is This is really cool. This is personal big data, okay? This is this is about how people are engaging with you, and it's it's giving you more, in some sense, uh, much more information about things just besides the oh look, three people finally retweeted me after fifteen hours. It's it's <laughs> also giving you um, the time in which people are engaging with you more. So so you can actually see that you know what if you tweet after like nine o'clock in the morning. And before two o'clock, you're going to get the most um, bang for your buck on on tweeting because there's the most number of people that are connected to you that are going to retweet you and or going to be looking at what you look at. Um, but they're also, you know, it, the analytics. Okay, and this is, you know, this is similar to Google Analytics. Okay, this is this is looking at who did see your tweet, who actually, you know, clicked on the link, who actually expanded it, and so on. And you can see that there's not a lot of people that actually 
open up what you actually point to and things like that. It's a little sort of depressing. To make you feel lonely. It does. It does. <laughs> it makes me feel unloved. Oh, there, my gosh. Uh, you, you probably know this guy named Dan Zarella. I mentioned in the past. He uh, calls himself a data scientist, and he's looked at billions of emails and what's the best time to send an email and, and, and tweets as well, and when's the best time to tweet. Now, I think from... Uh, a marketing perspective, uh, my social media buy is going to be uh, not on Facebook or in Twitter, but in LinkedIn. And this is from a business-to-business perspective. Now, with Twitter, I, I'm not, you know, I, I do some activity on Twitter. I, I don't see any uh, ROI uh, on using Twitter. I see it on LinkedIn and other, on email, but but not on Twitter. So I, I don't know where Twitter is going to be in the next few years. I think it's going to be very interesting. I'll take a look at this analytics tool and compare it with Google Analytics. But it's, you know, I don't think it's a, uh, an important hitter for people in, in my world of business-to-business sales. I, I think that that's something, I mean, I resisted Twitter for a long time, given that I researched social media. I was looking today, and I think it took me six months to sign up, but it took me a few years to find value in it. Uh, but now, for like my professional account, I have a new podcast, and so I tweet about that, and I can see like all these people are like clicking on my podcast, and I just want them to listen, right? So I'm getting a return on investment, but it's all like the social media world that I'm in, right? I'm on social media talking about social media. See, I work for small companies, and it, it's not just a good feeling. We want, we want money. And so the return on investment is dollars and sales, and if that can be measured accurately, that's what social media, from my perspective, social media for me is dollars and cents and increased sales. How's that for being... But uh, you know, you make, but it makes social media sound awful. I got to yeah. be honest. <laughs> well, that, that's my world. <laughs> but it's also about your personal brand. Okay, it's about who you are represent in the world. And for many of us, um, <clears throat> particularly certain academics, um, you know, people don't know about the research you do, or don't know about the papers you're publishing, or don't know about the conference you want them to know about. And this is a really great way. And and you don't have PR agents, you don't have um, the traditional, you know, press releases and so on. And and Twitter is the way to go. And it's um, and the more intelligent you are about using your time on social media. Um, and this is one of those view analytics is one of those options that will help you do that. John, Facebook updated its advertising and privacy policies. What do we need to know about the new privacy settings on Facebook? Here's what you need to know. It's going to change in three months. And they're <laughs> going to take and do everything they possibly can to weasel information out of you. And I don't trust those folks at Facebook. I don't care how much money that Zuckerberg has. I don't care if he has a book club starting up here in January to make more <laughs> money from chumps. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of Facebook. I you know, probably have six people on Facebook. I, I do it just for practice, and I lock everything down. But I, I know they're mining me, and, and I just I don't like those folks. So, uh, hey, they may be mining me at LinkedIn, but they're telling me they're doing it, and that's fine. But I think Facebook is, is very deceptive. I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with social media, they invest in Facebook and they don't realize what all the stuff they're giving away. Oh, yeah, Bill's on vacation in Vail, Colorado. Oh, great. I'm going to rob his house. I mean, there's things that happen there that people are just naive about. So I think home of naivete, Facebook. Bill, in the interest of protecting protecting us against ourselves on Facebook, researchers there are working on a digital assistant that would keep people from posting embarrassing photos they later regret. How's the company's artificial intelligence research lab approaching that project? So they're basically looking at your photos and they can determine, okay, this is what, let's say, a drunk Jen Goldbeck looks like. <laughs> oh, <dear laughs> theoretically, theoretically. <laughs> let's say from last Saturday Once night. Once the algorithms detect that, uh, let's say you're out partying yes, and you've had a few in you and you've done something <laughs> appropriate and you have a, someone took a, a, a picture with their phone you want to upload it well it can now say hey this might be are you drunk you might be drunk are you sure you want to post this that's that's the idea behind that the this worst is, thing would be like if it's telling me i'm drunk when i'm not right, right? it's like the middle of the day and they're like jen just you look drunk <laughs> but this is like parenting ai okay artificial <laughs> intelligent parents you know oh bad 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 and no. so bill's app will be uh, he's going to keep those uh, pictures and use them as blackmail hey jen give me you know, twenty thousand bucks i'm going to post it publicly i'm going to email it to your boss and all your exes uh, oh. <laughs> oh, we have a new business model like just <laughs> yes. for, yes. hackers the kojo show wants a percentage so on this show today we have solved cybersecurity yeah. and we've Kona developed sounds. a new business model exactly <laughs> very productive and it's only january allison let's look at the relationship between facebook and one of its big investors and partners microsoft the two tech giants seem to be growing apart why has facebook stopped including search results from bing and what does the drift mean for both companies and their users well this is a slap in the search face okay this is really <laughs> Very, very sad. I hate Bing. I mean, uh, this isn't sad news for me. No, I know. Bing is not my, my, my go-to search of choice. But um, basically, uh, Facebook said, hey, look, you know what? We can do a finer grain search on, uh, on, on not just uh, page, 
pages, but on posts that people are doing, you know what, we don't necessarily need you very much. And so they basically are not including Bing in uh, searches in Facebook. And uh, and they've even, um, they uh, Microsoft was supposed to be their ad partner as well. And they've uh, essentially, Microsoft sunk its tech, its ad tech in terms of uh in terms of going in that direction, and so Facebook uh, is just sort of been like saying, "Hey, we'll go it, we'll go it alone, we'll take it, um, we'll take that off your hands, and we'll deal we'll deal with it." It's not surprising. Two very different cultures. I mean, what do what do um, the researchers at Microsoft have to say to the uh, so-called researchers at Facebook? I can imagine it. It is not um, a happy marriage. <laughs> John, a firm that watches the tech market is predicting big innovations this year on what it calls the third platform, cloud services, mobile computing, social networking, big data and analytics. What do you think we'll see in this non-computer-based realm? Well, I was reading the article by IDC, and, and they didn't use the word cloud. They used third platform. I think they're trying to appropriate a term here or set a trend or something. And uh, it's, it's cloud-based. Now, um, what I see happening is more and more in companies, people are working remotely, and talent is uh, is uh, uh, distributed not only nationally but internationally. And so the whole idea of collaboration has to be there. And if you're going to collaborate, you have to be involved in the cloud. So what I see happening is I see services like Podio. I see services like Teamwork, where groups of individuals from all across the United States and the world can contribute for large software projects is what I see happening. So I think this move to the third platform is going to be there, whether you like it or not, only because you know in, in the world of enterprise architecture and software development, I can't control where the talent wants to be. If Bill's my best developer and he decides to, to live in the mountains in Canada, well, he's, I want him to work for me, so I'm going to do whatever I can. I'll set up whatever distributed account I can. And, and the last three or four conference calls I've had have been – Literally, people, I couldn't even imagine where they were at, and, and it's all different places. So so I think the, the the third platform or the cloud is going to be there, and I think just because of the nature of uh, the people under 35, because they want to do what they want to do, where they want to do it, and off they go, and, and they're not limited by some fuddy-duddy like me with a receptionist and a PBX and an office with a window. That's that's not the world coming up. So the answer is yes. For the cloud, you can call it the third platform, call it what you want, but everything's changing drastically. What's a PBX? <laughs> private branch exchange. Oh. It's an old-fashioned oh, telephone. Oh. I can tell you about private branch exchange. It switched to SIP technology in the, about the late 90s. It's it's what happens when you'd call, hi, Allison, this is receptionist. Who do you want to speak to? Jan, okay, one moment, please. That's what a PBX is. Do you feel really old now describing that uh, to I me? felt old 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, back to your conspiracy theories. We've just come through the biggest shopping season of the year, and some of us may have been unwitting victims of discriminatory pricing online, where retail charge different prices for the same goods. I actually saw this yesterday. I have an Audible account because I do a ton of audiobooks, and I went in through a browser I wasn't logged in on, and the book I was going to buy was like twenty four ninety nine, and so I logged in, and then it was seventeen ninety nine, and all I did was log in. So tell us about discriminatory pricing and how this scheme works online. What well, fits in with the snow day today? I was listening to the folks driving in here, and apparently there's a connector in Maryland, and it had dynamic pricing. And because of the snow day, the pricing went up to $7 to use a connector wow. in Maryland. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and so the term is dynamic pricing. And so Google really loves this term of dynamic pricing because they can do all kinds of dynamic things. For example, if Allison goes to a site, it could read her browser and or whatever cookie they placed on before and redesign information based on her previous viewing habits. So dynamic contents out there and also dynamic pricing is what's happening in the marketplace where people can identify not only to the zip code, probably within two miles within a right. zip code exactly, oh, Bill's got the big bucks, 18 bucks. Oh, Allison, she doesn't have any money. She can come up with two bucks for something. So it's it's very interesting how this dynamic concept and, and also what I see happening more and more, the marketing trend is going to be something called remarketing. So if Jen goes to a Ford dealer, looks at a car, and then she goes to the Washington Post, she's going to see ads popping up for Fords everywhere because the cookie was placed on your browser and the remarketing spot. So the idea of dynamic content and dynamic pricing is there. And I think what you have to do is you've got to keep, pra- you gotta keep them honest and, and know what's going on and, and shop and compare with a different browser, preferably. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that kind of creepiness, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, as a reminder, you're listening to the Kojo Namdi Show with the computer guys and gal. I'm Jen Golbeck sitting in for Kojo, and we'll continue our conversation in a moment. Stay with us.
Coming up at 1, two views of Cuba, how baseball built bridges to Cuba despite a diplomatic deep freeze, and a D.C. native reaches out to Cuba's growing skateboarding community. Today at 1 on the Kojo Nandi Show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Consider donating your used car, boat, or jet ski to support your favorite shows on WAMU 88.5. It's a great way to clean out your garage and get a tax write-off. And if you donate your vehicle by January 15th, we'll thank you with a $50 gas card. Find out more at 866-926-8444 or at WAMU.org. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from General Dynamics Information Technology, providing your enterprise as a service with secure federal cloud solutions. General Dynamics IT, gdit.com slash cloud. And from St. Anselm's Abbey School, located on 40 acres in Washington, offering academic rigor and a spiritual foundation for young men grades 6 through 12. Open house Sunday, January 11th from 1 to 3 p.m. More at stanselms.org. It's 26 degrees in northwest Washington. It'll stay in the 20s most of the day. It's 12:43. Welcome back. I'm Jen Goldbeck from the University of Maryland, sitting in for Kojo Namdi. I'm talking with the computer guys and gal, John Gilroy, Allison Druin, and Bill Harlow. The Consumer Electronics Show starts today in Las Vegas. It's the giant trade show where companies often roll out their new gadgets and gizmos or divulge the updates they're working on. It's a place for the media and the reviewers to check out what's new and get a jump on the trends of the year. What new tech gadget do you hope to see this year? Which company do you think has a radical new product up its sleeve? Give us a call at 1-800-433-8850 or send us an email to kojo at wamu.org. Bill, some tech writers say that 4K TV will get a big boost at this year's Consumer Electronics Show. What is a 4K TV, and how will I know when it's time for me to buy one? Well, let's back up for a second. I just want to take a quick poll here. Like, how big are your TVs? Like, do you, does anybody Mine's have like an, 47 inches. I just far, bought it. And how far away do you sit from it? Probably 8 feet. Okay, so if you bought a 4K TV at that size, you would not be able to tell. Like okay. You're just way too far away to even tell. But basically, a 4K TV, they just pack way more pixels. They call it 4K because in one of the dimensions, it's about 4,000 pixels mm-hmm. in resolution. So the potential is if you have 4K content, which means, I guess, you're watching House of Cards on Netflix or a few things on Amazon right now, Very and that's cheap. it. Yeah. Um, or if you eventually buy a Blu-ray player that can handle 4K output because that disc format can handle that resolution um, on disc. And if you have a big enough TV, and if you sit close enough, you might enjoy this razor-sharp picture it offers. Um, I'm not saying th- that you shouldn't get a 4K TV, because some people do have the environment for that. And also, on the high end, that's what you're going to get. If you want a really, really nice TV that also is nice and bright, um, offers excellent image processing, has really accurate color, deep black levels, it may be a 4K TV. So that's fine, but you're just not going to see the, the actual benefits from the 4K side of it unless you meet those other requirements. So from what you're saying, it sounds like this would be super useful for when you and I watch hockey, because that puck's really <laughs> tiny Exactly. On the so if you ever like a, get a 4K projector and watch hockey on it, I think 4K, like as high resolution is great on, on a computer. So if if you're like a gamer with a crazy fast computer and you want the and you're sitting close enough you want the utmost clarity you can get that or just content creation having like on the iMac the new 27 inch retina iMac has so much space for you to fill it, if, especially if you're doing creative work, you know, video editing or, or graphics or photography, that there's a real benefit there because you're also going to be close enough. It's on your desk. Another prediction for the Consumer Electronics Show is that virtual reality will get a lot of attention. What can we expect to see in the so-called VR this year? Well, I think this year... Oculus VR is finally going to release the consumer version of the Oculus Rift. I brought in the development kit, the first-generation development kit a few months ago, showed it to, to people here, including Kojo, and it's, it's really cool. I mean, it's, it's, that's one of the few technologies I've used where it's like I have never experienced anything quite like this. Even on, on the low-res demo I showed, it felt like I was really in a space. Everything felt like it was life-size. I felt like I was really there. So VR, I think, is going to be really huge. Um, I, the obvious applications are going to be gaming, but I can see being able to just kind of take a virtual tourist somewhere being really cool too and probably a lot of things no one's even thought of yet so i want to know from all of you what are you keeping an eye on at the consumer electronics show well for me i was really impressed with um with the self-driving cars 
Um, and, and it's funny because you don't think of Consumer Electronics Show. What's what's the deal with cars? But it turns out that it's actually a big deal. Um, and it's not just Google thinking about the self-driving cars. Um, Audi actually has the A7 Sportsback, and it's driving to uh, to the actual uh, uh, conference, um, to the electronic sh- uh, uh, show, um, 550 miles. But it's only doing it sort of in a hybrid way. Um, so it's piloted driving tech. And so it's automated until it gets to a city and then the human takes over. So you could literally time when you take a nap and then uh, and then get in there and, and drive and so on. I got to say, I mean, I I am one of those people who have been like self-driving cars, like whatever, like not going anywhere near that. But I read a comic on the oatmeal last night, which is like one of my favorite. Well, websites. if it's on the oatmeal, then, yeah, it's, it's got to be true. true. That's right, go for my news. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was talking about he had test driven or test ridden one of these Google self-driving cars. And he kind of concluded with this thought of like, you know, they're they're not all that great yet and they're kind of boring but uh, he was saying that his mom had had a stroke like six months ago and had lost a lot of her vision and couldn't drive and uh, it doesn't like as long as they're safe like let's get them out right. as soon as possible because it means this whole level of independence for people who are older who have medical problems who can't drive themselves and that was an argument I hadn't thought of but uh, like instantly convinced me that like we need to get these things even if they're going to go 25 miles an hour and be like slow in your little town like that's going to make a world of difference for a lot of people yeah and i mean it doesn't have to be fully automated too it can be somewhere in between cruise control and fully automated well, even now there are cars that will keep you out of a crash as well like you're still driving but if it detects like someone cutting you off it'll automatically apply brakes and it has sensors to do that so yeah a hybrid model where you know the, the cars save us from ourselves is, is useful too CES has a uh, popular acronym called IOT, Internet of Things. And what people are predicting is that by 2020, there will be 40 billion little devices out there with IP addresses. And, and, and this, is, this is a real problem. I, I look at it as a, a hot and beautiful mess. I think it's just really, I mean, what's going to happen to all this information? And you get a house, you can have sensors everywhere, humans with sensors, sensors in your phone. I, I don't think this bodes well for uh, privacy or security in the future. But we'll see. I mean, if it's CES, it's got to be great, right? I mean, you've got to go out there and cover it and all the big... Only know. useful stuff at CES. Yes, only useful <laughs> stuff, yeah. We have a call from Sally in Washington, D.C. about what's going on at the CES. Sally, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So I was reading an intriguing blog post this morning about a company called Soundwall, which is at the CES, which has art that is interactive, art that listens to music and plays music. And I was wondering if any of you have ever heard of anything like that. Just totally intrigued me. Interactive art. It sounds sort of like a visualizer in iTunes, right? Like I've seen I've seen some things for um, like I think video games where it's the same idea where it can actually like listen to your environment and it'll change what's what's on the TV. As far I haven't seen the sound wall itself. Maybe it's cooler than 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 uh, than I'm thinking. But it sounds like you'd very easily do that on almost any screen. Well, and it's it it actually the technologies have been around for a long time. I've seen a lot of this kind of stuff at SIGGRAPH when they um, uh, basically the special interest group um, on uh, computerized graphics and and they've been doing a lot of this kind of reactive um, artwork for years. Um, and it's mostly been in labs, but. Uh, it more recently has uh, been coming out of labs to for the general public to see, and it's it's great that it is getting out. We got a security call from John in Chevy Chase, Maryland. John, you're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'd like to ask the panel what they think of the way the Chrome browser builds itself into your system by installing a lot of extra very confusing extensions, which basically turn the thing into malware. John, I love this question because, like, Chrome puts some little icon, like Google notification icon, on the top bar of my Mac, and it throws me into a rage for, like, 15 <laughs> minutes until I figure out how to get rid of it. Like, it's so intrusive and terrible. Uh, so I'm glad that John asked this question because it has made me, like, stay far away from Chrome. I just can't stand that, like, infiltration. Well, all the cool kids use Chrome, though. That's what I noticed. It's, it's, <laughs> all it's, the cool it's, kids. It's so true. All, all, all the younger oh. kids, people younger than me, so they're all young twerps, in my opinion. Well, I'm, I'm a big believer. 
if you're in multiple browsers, you have to give them permission to put those add-ons on there. And you can switch browsers if you want. Why not have two or three different browsers? And, and I allow some sites to place cookies on my browser, and I'll switch browsers and not let them do that and just see what happens just to play. So I think it's like saying, well, you know, I painted my uh, house green, and now people think it's a weird house. I mean, if you're going to let people do this to you, you don't. there's no gun to your head saying you have to use Chrome. So use whatever you want. And Firefox with every blocking extension yep. installed. No, and I use Firefox as well. Yeah, I use several of them. So. And then I have to switch to Safari sometimes because it, sites don't work with all of those blocking things installed. Yeah, I have, I have all three. And it's like, okay, well, let's see. Oh, this broke, so time to use this browser, which yeah. is hilarious because <laughs> the, the problems with the web has always been compatibility across all platforms, which is still not 100% true. Yeah. All right, fun new gadgets to keep our eye on this year. Allison, you've got a couple of these. First, Amazon has a new product called Echo that's essentially Siri for the home. How does it work and how useful is it? It's basically a black cylinder. Um, and you can just place it anywhere um, in a room, and you basically say, Alexa, what? how tall is Jen Gobeck? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you change the name? What if you have a kid named Alexa? What I do you know. Do? It's <laughs> really bad. <laughs> Alexa, you know, when is the next movie theater uh, showing, um, you know, in the woods? Uh, it's basically you can ask questions to it. Um, you can play music. You can get the time, the weather. Um, and it's actually the beginning of thinking about how do you have voice activation in your home. Um, you've, you've, we've had this on our cell phones, but now if you think about um, these objects that you can basically talk to that, that basically start to tell you things. This thing doesn't have battery. It should have battery mm -hmm. because that you should be able to place it anywhere. It has no wheels, so it would be nice to be able to say, hey, Alexa, come over here. I need to talk to you. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's missing a few things, but it's really cool for 100 bucks um, if you have Amazon Prime. Very, very cool thing. Smartphones can already send voice signals, text messages, and emails, but what if they could also send a whiff of perfume or the smell of freshly baked cookies? <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> that may not be as futuristic as it sounds, Allison. Okay, so I hate perfume-scented letters and ads, okay? I'm just going to go on record <laughs> as saying that right now. However, there is smell-o-vision, okay? And it is... Um, yes, people are actually creating um, the ability... There's an O-Snap app. Uh, which allows users to create an O note with a smell created out of, um, you know, you basically have 32 options. It's like a bad, you know, um, Christmas card or something, and you can combine these things and send it off to people. But they are they're suggesting that in the next year or so, you're going to be able to go walk into a great bakery and smell something and say, hey, I've got to send that smell to Jen, okay? And you just instead of texting a picture, you're texting a smell. So Kojo and Amity missed the discussion of smell-o-vision. I love it! Terrible. <laughs> we have to do this again I next month. I about that, though. So I could be somewhere and you could be like, hey, I'm at this great bakery. Smell this. Like, hey, that's great. You going to bring me some? No, I just want you to smell it. <laughs> just jealousy. Just jealousy. I do love it. Well, I, I mean, this was interesting to me when I saw that you had mentioned this, Allison, because I did a research project a few years ago kind of on a whim where we were building a interactive dog video chat system. So when you're away from your house, you can talk to your dog or play some stuff for them. And we found that they were very responsive to like hearing things, but they wouldn't look at the screen. And we were like, wouldn't it be great if the you could like send you. the smells <laughs> to the dog, right? That's that's how they do it. And, and I actually just saw an ad for a kind of consumer grade version of this, where it basically had like a thing you plugged into your wall and it had a little screen on it. So you could like Skype with your dog. And I was like, I have done this research and the dog is not going to look at the picture of you on the Skype. But the smell, you could totally, like, freak your dog out, right? Well, I mean, and we're just in the, you know, bits and atoms stage of this right now. So, you know, essentially it's, it's uh, you know, automated uh, Christmas cards here and, you know, here, let me just send you a smell kind of thing. But it really, you in the next, the next generation is going to get closer and closer. Bill, a passing of note in 2014, the father of video games, Ralph Bayer, died in December. He was 92. Tell us about his legacy. So um, he, he's known as the father of video games, um, or I think more accurate is father of video games as we know them, modern console games. So if you ever had an Atari 2600 way, way, way back in the day, or an, a Nintendo, or you got a new PlayStation 4 for Christmas. But not uh, my Intellivision? No, that counts. Okay, that counts. I had one of those. If you had one of those instead of the, the 2600, like all the cool kids, that counts. I was so lame. So, <laughs> so he uh, created this device uh, that, that eventually he sold to Magnavox called the Odyssey, uh, and it went uh, on sale back in 72. And you could hook it up to your TV. Way before I was born. Wow. And you could pop in game cards and, and play different <laughs> games. And he also created one of my favorite toys as a kid, the Simon. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh, yeah. Was, the bomb. Yeah, exactly. Wow. The four colors. You have to play along with it. So, <laughs> so good. Best game ever. So from, I loved from, it. from Simon and the Magnavox Odyssey to a, an industry worth over $20 billion today. We got an email from Steve who says, I was recently tempted to put some photos on a thumb drive to take them to my local photo lab for printing after having problems trying to upload them to the website. I ultimately burned them to a DVD and took that to the lab. Problem solved. But would I have been in danger of getting my thumb drive infected if I had gone that route? Or am I being paranoid? John Gilroy, I don't believe believes in paranoia (laughs) also is there a danger in buying new thumb drives that are already infected at the manufacturer well andy grove famously said only the paranoid will survive (laughs) now what bill says is paranoia will destroy you so i think in my side of the equation i think it's reasonable when i when i take uh, photographs to costco uh, i take a, a blank thumb drive and i'll put two photographs on there and take it and print them out or something. And I'm very, very wary about, you know, all my tax information for the last five years, I'm going to hand over some scumbag at, let's just say, a, a large retail store. No, so you just have to be discreet and careful about that. It's like not like you're locking your bicycle. You want to maybe lock up your bicycle. So a thumb drive is like luggage at the airport. If you left your site, can you trust it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, you know, and, I, and I, would, I, would be, I, would expect, I would expect to be attacked at a place like that. So. Time for App of the Month. John, your app of the month is for all of us who've made a New Year's resolution to get in shape. How does the app 100 push-ups help? Well, what happens is uh, if you follow all the instructions, you can do 100 push-ups in one set within six weeks. Oh, and uh, when I was doing some research on this, it says it's it's not an officially sanctioned 100 push-ups iOS app. So maybe you only get to 90 or 95, but <laughs> but everyone has fitness goals, and I have certain cardiovascular fitness goals for 2015. And I don't think you might as well put this on top of something like that. Instead of doing 10 sets of 10 pull-ups every day or you know three sets of 20 dips, maybe. Allison, you like the Sleep Cycle Alarm Clock app. How does it help you wake up at the best time? Yeah, I'm all about my resolution is sleeping. And what it basically does is this little app um, detects how much you move, decides when your sleep cycle, what sleep cycle you're in, and then decides when you're almost awake and wakes you up within a 30-minute range of your, your most optimum time and hopefully gets you up um, and in very happy state. Bill, your app of the month is called Tunity. What does it do? So if you're at, you know, at a sports bar or at a gym and the TV's on, you can't hear it, you, you install this app on your iPhone or Android phone, point it at the TV, it identifies what's playing live, and then it downloads the stream of the Internet to your to your um, iPhone, and you can listen to it. Good deal. Sounds great. Computer guys and gal, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Goldbeck, sitting in for Kojo. Thanks for listening. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Nambi Show, changing neighborhoods, booming new restaurants, how gentrification affects our region's dining choices. Plus, after a tragic family loss, a boy spends a transformative summer in Appalachia. Novelist Christopher Scotton joins us. The Kojo Nambi Show, noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. More of the Kojo Nambi Show ahead here on WAMU 88.5. On the next Fresh Air, writer and TV producer George Pelicanos. He worked on the HBO series The Wire and Treme. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button and thanks.